If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In October 1979, a chef called John Docker approached Marks and Spencers with a plan for a range of high-class ready meals. The group director worried that Docker's groundbreaking chicken Kievs would never sell because he thought customers would be put off by the garlic. But after a decade of package holidays, garlic held few terrors for British diners. That was Dominic Sandbrook describing life in Britain in the 1970s from his lecture at our History Weekend Festival last year. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. My name is Rob Attar and I'm the editor of BBC History magazine, which is the UK's best-selling history magazine. You can find us in all good news agents, or you can take out a subscription from anywhere in the world. Visit historyextra.com forward slash subscribe hyphen today for our latest subscription deals. And we have digital editions available for the iPad, Kindle, Kindle Fire, Google Play and Zinio. For details of all of these, please head to historyextra.com forward slash digital. Last October, we held our inaugural BBC History magazine History Weekend Festival in the Wiltshire town of Malmesbury. Among the speakers was Dominic Sambrook, a historian and broadcaster who specialises in post-war Britain. For his lecture at the festival, Dominic chose to focus on a decade when Britain underwent a sea of social, economic, political and cultural changes the 1970s. I've been lucky enough to write for BBC History magazine for the last seven years or so, I think it is now, during which time I've had 
um, probably literally tons of letters from readers uh, generally complaining about my pieces. So it's obviously a great uh, pleasure to meet so many of you uh, in person. I must apologise at the start. Um, I'm suffering from a dreadful cold, which means that the talk will be delivered as a kind of tribute to the nasal tones of a British Rail announcer circa 1977. So then, the 1970s. Has any decade in our recent history ever had such a bad press? The defining characteristics of the 70s, according to the writer Francis Wien, were economic disaster, terrorist threats, corruption in high places, prophecies of ecological doom, and the fear of the surveillance state's suffocating embrace. I have to say, all oh, that sounds depressingly familiar. But to anyone who remembers the years that fashion notoriously forgot, there was, I think, something different about them a flavour that distinguished them from the optimistic 60s and the gaudy 80s. Perhaps it was Harold Wilson's pipe or Kevin Keegan's perm, Tom Baker's scarf, Roger Moore's eyebrows, Johnny Rotten's hair or Bruce Forsyth's jokes, although some of those are still with us. Monty Python, Fulty Towers, Prawn Cocktail, Black Forest Gatto, British Leyland, Arthur Scargill, two miners' strikes, one Arab oil shock and a three-day week, and all of that is just to scratch the surface. This was an age in which almost every week saw bombs going off in Northern Ireland, when almost half of the working population belonged to a trade union, when First Division footballers earned less than £200 a week, when Angel Delight was a gourmet treat, and when, and when Phil Collins had long hair. Now, of course, you'll all have your own individual experience that no historian can ever perfectly capture. My 70s, for example, really were the decade of Bagpuss, the Wombles, Space Hoppers and Star Wars. I was born in October 1974, eight days before the second general election of the year, and when Margaret Thatcher came to power, I was not yet five years old. And yet, I rather suspect that my origins did have something to do with the tortured economic climate of the day. Not so long ago, I was looking into the three-day week of early 1974, when Ted Heath's government limited Britain's businesses to just three days of electricity, and when shops were limited to mornings or afternoons. Now, abroad, it was seen as a supreme humiliation, but the newspapers were full of tips advising people on how to spend their unexpected free time. And one commentator, and of all places, the Daily Mail, had some surprisingly saucy advice. The three-day week, she said, was a chance for husbands and wives to be more spontaneous, to experiment more in their sex lives while the children are doing a five-day week at school. <laughs> now, like you, I was highly amused when I found that story, but the smile was very quickly wiped from my face when I realised that those words were written almost exactly nine months before I was born. <laughs> there could be very few authors who, in writing their books, are forced to contemplate the serious possibility that they may owe their very lives to a column in the Daily Mail, and if only indirectly, to that great seafaring bachelor, Ted Heath. So, let me briefly take you back to that moment, late 1973, early 1974, as you'll see from the slide, arguably one of the grimmest episodes in our modern economic and political history. So it's Christmas Day, 1973, and at number one, are the black country's finest, Slade, with Merry Christmas, everybody. And when you hear it on the high street today, as I can assure you, you inevitably soon will, how many of you will know that it was deliberately written as an antidote to the miserable economic headlines of the day? 
The country couldn't have been at a lower ebb, Noddy Holder later explained. In times like that, people always turn to showbiz. That's why I came up with the line, look to the future now, it's only just begun. In fact, when you look back at Britain's economic problems almost exactly 40 years ago, our own problems pale by comparison. Overnight, as a reaction to the latest Arab-Israeli war, the Middle East's oil producers have put up their prices by some 70%. The National Union of Mine Workers are about to go on strike for the second time in two years. The government had declared its fifth state of emergency in just three years. Britain's trade deficit was at an all-time high, inflation was heading towards 20%, and interest rates were more than 13%. On top of all that, the stock market was in meltdown, and in just one month, the market's value dropped by a quarter. And by January 1974, share prices had fallen by almost half in just two years. So no wonder Noddy thought people needed cheering up. And no wonder either that so many people seriously thought that Britain, or perhaps even capitalism itself, was on its last legs. In 30 years since the end of the Second World War, we lost our empire, our economic lead, and much of our national self-confidence. We had been too complacent for too long. We'd started lagging behind our European competitors, and the relationship between successive governments and the trade unions had degenerated into outright confrontation. Whether they were left-wing or right-wing, most politicians agreed that something wasn't right. The only thing they disagreed about was the remedy. Now, of course, most ordinary people were too busy getting on with their lives to worry about the state of the nation. On Christmas Day in 1973, tens of millions gathered around their new colour TVs to watch the special editions of The Generation Game, The Mike Yarwood Show, and Morecambe and Wise. And yet behind all the tinsel, the great and the good were profoundly worried about what the new year might hold. Just before Christmas, Labour's shadow chancellor, Dennis Healy, soon to be chancellor himself, warned his colleagues that Britain faces an economic holocaust. That same week, the Treasury's top civil servant, Sir Douglas Allen, told his officials that he expected Britain to adopt a siege economy with rationing on the wartime model. All the time, the historian A.J.P. Taylor was sending a series of increasingly gloomy letters to his Hungarian wife, Eva. He was terrified, he said, by the approaching hurricane, shortages of oil and coal, the absence of heat and light, millions thrown out of work. I've been expecting the collapse of capitalism all my life, he wrote Riley. But now that it comes, I'm rather annoyed. <laughs> the man at the centre of the storm was one of Mike Yarwood's better impersonations, better admittedly of quite a bad bunch, uh, the Conservative Prime Minister, Edward Heath. Now, Heath was one of three Prime Ministers, as many of you remember, between 1970 and 1979, none of them conspicuously successful. Unlike most of our current politicians, this grammar school-educated son of a Kentish builder was a walking advertisement for social mobility. He'd won power in 1970, promising a fresh start for Britain, a new age of streamlined, modernised capitalism, an end to subsidised failure, and a new role at the heart of the European community. But for Ted Heath, it all went very wrong very quickly. Inflation ran out of control, the miners twice walked out on strike, Northern Ireland collapsed into virtual civil war, and to cap it all, the great Arab oil shock had plunged the world economy deep into recession. At the beginning of 1974, with the miners out and energy supplies running dangerously low, Heath infamously declared a three-day working week. And in February, he called a shock election on the issue of the government 
versus the miners. But as many of you will remember, against all predictions, the result was a hung parliament. In an obvious parallel with three years ago, Heath tried to reach a coalition deal with the Liberals, which might have meant the extraordinary prospect of the Liberal leader, Jeremy Thorpe, becoming Home Secretary and later presiding over his own prosecution for conspiracy to murder his lover. <laughs> but the talks failed, and the Palace called instead for Heath's old Labour rival, Harold Wilson. Now, Wilson had been Prime Minister before in the 1960s, but this was a bit different. No money. The economy stuck in recession. Inflation at 26%. The pound in freefall. It's a pretty bleak picture. Indeed, for my money, Wilson's two-year administration after 1974 is probably the worst in our modern political history. Wilson wasn't well. He was drinking too much, and he'd palpably run out of ideas. I'm too bored to face jumping any more hurdles, he once told one of his advisors. The trouble with me now is that I only have the same old solutions to the same old problems. In 1976, Wilson resigned and gave way to the third of these men on the slide, Jim Callaghan. Now, in many ways, Callaghan was the last old-school prime minister. Certainly, he was the last old Labour one, a working-class boy with a deep loyalty to the trade unions. Like many politicians of the day, though, he was gloomy about Britain's prospects. When I'm shaving in the morning, he once told the cabinet, I say to myself that if I was a young man, I'd emigrate. Now, there are two, there are two striking things about Callaghan. The first is that by today's standards, he was often remarkably conservative. He told his aides that he was an old-fashioned male chauvinist. I would never, he said, want a woman private secretary. Lunching with his policy unit, Callaghan confessed that he was embarrassed by nudity on TV or on the stage, especially, he said, in the company of his children, even though they were in middle age and now had children themselves. And the gay rights movement of the day left him completely bewildered. He'd been completely unaware of homosexuality, he admitted, until well into adult life, until, oddly, he entered the House of Commons. They say that we are all repressed homosexuals, he once mused. But it all puzzles me, because there have always been so many attractive girls. Now, the other striking thing is that at the time, Sonny Jim was remarkably popular. At a time when tabloid headlines were dominated by punk rockers and football hooligans, Callaghan came over as a reassuring champion of old-fashioned family values. For most of his three years in office, his personal approval rating was almost 60%. That's the highest figure for any prime minister for 12 years, and well ahead of his Tory opponent, Margaret Thatcher. Indeed, in the late summer of 1978, with polls pointing to a narrow Labour victory, most people expected that he would soon call an early general election. Instead, he chose to hang on until 1979, when he hoped the economy would have improved. And it was, I think, perhaps the worst tactical decision in our recent political history. Because this is what happened next. This is Leicester Square in February 1979, during the infamous winter of discontent. And this is probably the single most enduring political image of 70s Britain. I expect many of you will be familiar with the story. For five years, Wilson and Callaghan had been fighting a desperate battle against inflation, begging and cajoling the trade unions to accept a series of informal deals that had brought annual pay rises down from almost 30% to less than 10%. But in the autumn of 1978, the shop steward's patience snapped. One by one, the unions walked out. First the Ford car workers, then the lorry drivers, 
then the sewage workers, and finally, most famously, the very low-paid public sector workers on whom so many essential services depended, caretakers, cleaners, dustmen, even grave diggers. Across much of the country, the schools closed because of shortages of heating oil. In London, Nottingham and Manchester, all the bus services were cancelled because there was no fuel. Liverpool docks, half a million pounds worth of cucumbers and tomatoes lay rotting on the quayside. In the supermarkets, the shelves were stripped of sugar, butter, milk and salt. On Merseyside, the cemeteries were locked and corpses stacked up in refrigerated warehouses. And in the West End, as you see here, the bin bags piled up as press photographers competed for the best pictures of rats on the town. Many people, of course, were relatively untouched by the winter of discontent. They just read about it in the newspapers. But it left an enormously powerful impression, destroying not just the union's public standing, but Callaghan's chances of winning re-election. Even many Labour supporters were horrified by the winter's events. We are a society of greed and anarchy. No honour, no responsibility, no pride, the Labour-supporting director of the National Theatre, Peter Hall, wrote in his diary. Six days later, after he'd flown to Canada, he wrote that he felt sad to leave an embattled England to come to a place which is clean, well-organised and efficient. The British people, he thought, seemed to be presiding over the collapse of decency and integrity without the energy even to realise what's happening. My God, the tattiness of England now. And for card-carrying conservatives, like the poet Philip Larkin, the strikes only reinforced their long-standing hatred of the unions. In a letter to his friend Kingsley Amos, Britain's most celebrated poet was on blistering form. The lower-class bastards, he wrote, can no more stop going on strike than a laboratory rat with an electrode in its brain can stop jumping on a switch to give itself an orgasm. Now, of course, not everybody would have agreed with Larkin, but this is the image of the 70s that has gone down in political legend. The strikes, the blackouts, the sense of failure, a decade of economic meltdown and national humiliation. But there was, of course, another side to the story. And although it's easy to paint the decade as bleak and depressing, the fact remains that many people, perhaps most, were living happier and more comfortable lives than ever before. I think, for example, of people like my parents, born in 1945 and 46, married in 1970, bought their first home, went on their first foreign holiday, and enjoyed a lifestyle well beyond the expectations of their parents and their grandparents at a similar age. And this is the social landscape captured by sitcoms like The Good Life, which started in 1975. Now, this is a world not just of ecological idealists and feisty feminists in fetching dungarees, but of middle-class couples buying their own homes and building new lives in places like Surbiton, the place The Good Life is set. Shows like this were, of course, very popular in the 1970s. Think of Happy Ever After or Terry and June or George and Mildred or a little bit later, Ever Decreasing Circles. Now, maybe you remember them fondly or maybe you remember them as embarrassingly unfunny, but the point is that they succeeded because they did reflect what was happening to Britain. What they captured was the underlying trend of economic affluence and in particular, because they're always set in the home, people's growing obsession with property. In 1950, only one in four families had owned their own home. But by 1970, that was already up to one in two. A year later, the Bank of England relaxed its rules on lending, and then the great property boom was on. By 1973, houses had gone up by 70% in just two years. In fact, by 1980, house prices had gone up 10 times 
in 10 years. And if you'd been smart enough to get a mortgage in 1970, the chances are that within barely a decade, inflation would have wiped it out. So look again at that slide. Look at the clothes they're wearing. Felicity Kendall's, uh, she's just wearing, you can just spot it, she's wearing jeans, for example. Or even more striking, in fact, hard to miss, Paul Eddington's rather disturbing trousers. <laughs> Look at the kind of house that they're in, the windows, the expensive patterned wallpaper, the leather sofa just visible in the corner poking out from behind Penelope Keith. This is that image of affluence and of change, a picture of two suburban couples enjoying a comfortable lifestyle that their parents in the 1930s could never reasonably have imagined. Now, of course, these people, these characters never existed. But millions of people like them did. And for them, I think 70s Britain had never had it so good. So the story of the 70s isn't all bleakness and bin bags. And if you want another example of the rosier picture, then think about what happened in 1976. Now, in some ways, 1976 was a pretty dreadful year to be British. It saw some of the worst sectarian atrocities in Northern Ireland. It was the year of Harold Wilson's notorious lavender list, and above all, it was the year that Britain took its begging bowl to the IMF, probably the single most humiliating moment in our entire economic history. But 1976 was also the year that this opened, the Brent Cross Shopping Centre, the first American-style standalone mall in Britain. And the story that this building tells of one of ordinary people spending more money on more things than ever before, a story of shopping, transforming people's lives, and of citizens becoming consumers. The first supermarkets had opened in the 1950s, and there were 3,000 of them by 1970. But they were often pretty small. It was the 70s that gave us the first out-of-town hypermarket. The first one, 60,000 square feet, was opened by Carrefour in Carefilly in 1972. And it was joined by a second Carrefour a year later in, in Telford, a place very dear to my heart because that's where I used to buy my Star Wars toys. <laughs> By 1974, a spokesman for Debenhams was predicting that what he called the trendy out-of-town superstore with its easy parking will soon become a British institution. Interestingly, though, the press thought he was completely mad. People will surely draw the line, said the Times in an editorial, at having to travel three or four miles for their shopping. <laughs> Indeed, although it's easy today to mock everyday life in the 70s as comically old-fashioned, the violent wallpaper and shagpile carpets, the towering heels and gigantic collars, what really struck people at the time was just how rapidly things were changing. By 1977, one in eight restaurants already served foreign food, and for the first time, there were more Chinese restaurants than there were fish and chip shops. People even drank twice as much wine at the end of the 70s than they had at the beginning. And when, in October 1979, a chef called John Docker approached Marks and Spencer's with a plan for a range of high-class ready meals, he was pushing at an open door. The group director worried that Docker's groundbreaking chicken Kievs would never sell because he thought customers would be put off by the garlic. But after a decade of package holidays, garlic held few terrors for British diners. <laughs> Even our obsession with electronic gadgets was born in the 70s. It was in 1972 that Clive Sinclair launched his first cut-price calculator, and for a time it seemed that Britain had gone calculator crazy. Boots talked of a calculator Christmas. Dixons even predicted the rise of the two and three calculator family. Sadly, sadly there was only so much appetite for calculators. But in 1980, 
Sinclair returned to the high street with another product, the world's first cut-price computer, the ZX80. It cost £100, and Sinclair sold 50,000 of them. Now, at the time, skeptics again scoffed that home computers would never catch on, not perhaps the wisest prediction ever made. One other thing about Brent Cross. It was an experience that relied on cheap credit. Barclay Card had been launched in 1966, but the real breakthrough came in 1972 with the Access Card, if you remember your flexible friend, a joint venture by NatWest, Midland Lloyds, and RBS. Now, it's hard to exaggerate just how dramatic the credit boom was. By the early 70s, nearly half of all our spending on cars, furniture, TVs, and appliances was done on credit. And when you think that today the average British household owes almost £6,000, not including their mortgage. All of this looks like the start of a profound and perhaps not entirely healthy revolution in our national economic life. Of course, this wasn't the only area in which British life was radically changing. Take, for example, the success, the style and the meaning of this man, David Bowie. Now, Bowie wasn't the biggest selling British musician of the 70s. That honour belongs to Elton John. But he was, I think, the most influential. His chart heyday came in 1972 and 1973, when he was widely seen as the embodiment of glam rock. But his real legacy, I don't think, was so much musical as it was broader, more cultural. After all, just look at the picture. Only a few years earlier, for a man to go on stage like that in tights and makeup would have been almost unimaginable outside of pantomime. Five years before that picture was taken, homosexuality was still illegal. Yet as early as 1971, the cover of Bowie's album, The Man Who Sold the World, showed him wearing a dress. And in 1972, he told Melody Maker that he was gay, although he later amended that to bisexual, and later still admitted that all the time he'd been a closet heterosexual. <laughs> never before, though, had British teenagers had such a radical role model. Indeed, never before had teenage boys been encouraged to experiment with makeup themselves, even if they did risk a bit of a kicking on the street corner. But the fact is that in an age of women's liberation and shifting gender roles, when even perfectly respectable men were growing their hair, identity itself seemed to be up for grabs. If I've been at all responsible for people finding more characters within themselves than they originally thought they'd had, then I'm pleased, Bowie remarked because that's something I feel very strongly about, that one isn't totally what one has been conditioned to think one is. And in many ways, those words, I think, sum up the spirit of the entire decade. But Bowie's career also reflects the darker side of British life in the 1970s. Much of his music, after all, is very different from the cheery optimism of 60s pop. His album Diamond Dogs, for example, which came out in 1974, is set in a post-apocalyptic landscape modelled on George Orwell's book 1984. By this stage, Bowie was already a tax exile, having left Britain for the United States and then West Germany. And in fact, he was only one of a host of celebrities to flee abroad for tax reasons, joining people like the Rolling Stones, Rod Stewart, Sean Connery, Roger Moore, even Michael Caine. Even England's football manager, Don Revy, jumped ship in 1977 to coach the United Arab Emirates, telling the press the British tax structure makes it impossible to earn this kind of money at home. And to be fair, you can see why, because when David Bowie and Don Revy left England, our top rate of income tax was 83%, and the top rate on investments was, famously, 98%. 
Indeed, in many ways, Bowie absolutely exemplifies the pervasive negativity that had seeped into much of our public life. The far right were on the march. In the 1973 West Bromwich by-election, the National Front picked up a record 16% of the vote. A year later, in the February 74 general election, the National Front won only 3%, but as many commentators pointed out at the time, that was more than the Nazis had won in Germany in 1928, five years before they took power. Now, of course, we know now that the National Front would never break through to become a serious political force, but nobody knew that then. And it was in this context that in 1975, Bowie told the NME that what Britain needed was, and I quote, an extreme right front to come up and sweep everything off its feet and tidy everything up. A year later, he returned to the theme in an interview with Playboy. Yes, he said, yes, I believe very strongly in fascism. The only way we can speed up the sort of liberalism that's hanging foul in the air at the moment is to speed up the progress of a right-wing, totally dictatorial tyranny and get it over with as fast as possible. Now today, all of that sounds pretty shocking, and Bowie himself is understandably embarrassed by it. But at the time, I think, he was reflecting a wider sense that Great Britain Limited just wasn't working, that if you had any sense, you'd get out, and that if you were young and unlucky, then you were finished. We often think that youth unemployment only arrived in the early 1980s. In fact, by 1977, youth unemployment had more than trebled in a decade, and by the end of the 70s, four out of 10 under 25s were already out of work. So it's not really surprising that when punk rock exploded onto the scene in 1976 and 1977, people first described it as doll cue rock. And it's not surprising either that Sex Pistols' most famous song, God Save the Queen, ends with the refrain, no future, no future, no future for you. Indeed, other groups took a similar line. Democracy has totally collapsed. It's lost all its credibility. The Stranglers guitarist, Jean-Jacques Bernal, a university history graduate, told the NME. So we're due for tyranny. People laugh at that because England is the last place for that, but I really think it could happen. Now today, of course, all that sounds wildly overblown, but it is striking how many people at the time, whatever their political inclination, believed it. So here's a diary entry by a man called Bernard Donoghue in August 1975. Britain, he wrote, is a miserable sight, a society of failures full of apathy and aroused only by envy of the success of others. That is why we will continue to decline. Meanness has replaced generosity. Envy has replaced endeavour. Malice is the most common motivation. This is the social personality of a loser. Fascism could breed in this unhealthy climate. Now, Donoghue wasn't your average Mr. Angry. Actually, he was the chief policy advisor to Harold Wilson and Jim Callaghan at Number 10 Downing Street. Indeed, in the corridors of power, views like his were very common, especially abroad. When the US Secretary of State, Henry Kissinger, discussed Britain with President Gerald Ford in 1975, these were his words, and I will spare you my Kissinger impersonation. Britain, he said, is a tragedy. It has sunk to begging, borrowing, stealing until North Sea oil comes in. That Britain has become such a scrounger is a disgrace. But just a few months later, the Wall Street Journal told its readers that the future held only still slower economic growth and still, still lower living standards 
for all the British, rich and poor. Goodbye, Great Britain, it said. It was nice knowing you. Now, it's against that background that people tried to make sense of punk rock. This, said the feminist writer Angela Carter in 1977, was the music of those who cannot work because there is no work to be had. Even the pro-Labour Daily Mirror agreed that punk was an expression of despair. It's not much fun to be young today, began an editorial entitled <coughs> Punk Future in June 1977, pointing out that in the previous month, 104,000 school leavers have gone straight from their classrooms to an idle and purposeless life on the dole. Is it any wonder, asked the Mirror, that youngsters feel disillusioned and betrayed? Is it any wonder that they turn to anarchistic heroes like Johnny Rotten? Punk rock is tailor-made for youngsters who think that they only have a punk future. Now, the great irony is that punk wasn't really the soundtrack of the 70s because most people never listened to it. Even for most teenagers, it was too aggressive, too unsettling. If you look at the charts during punk's late 70s heyday, you've discovered that the real crowd pleasers were ABBA, Boney M, and the Bee Gees. <laughs> but thanks to its sheer nihilism, punk became emblematic of a social and political consensus that seemed to be tearing itself apart. And perhaps the absence of any real equivalent today tells you something surprisingly heartening about the relative contentment of Britain in the 2010s. I can't believe that I'm alone in finding Simon Cowell much more frightening than Johnny Rotten. But even so, it is hard to see him as a threat to the moral fabric of the nation. So let me end with the two things which I think the 70s will be most remembered. This is the first, Europe. Now these images are from the referendum on staying in the European community in 1975. We'd already been members for two years, thanks to Ted Heath, but when Wilson got back in, he made a vague show of renegotiating the terms and then asked the public if they wanted to stay. So Tony Benn, uh, closest to me on this slide, was the most outspoken champion of the no camp. As her, frankly, rather extraordinary jumper suggests, uh, Margaret Thatcher, who was then Tory leader for just a few months, was all for staying in. And so too with the rather bizarre assortment of celebrities featured in the Yes Camps adverts. If you can't see them, people, uh, J.B. Priestley, Richard Briers, David Bailey, even Dad's Army's Arthur Lowe, Captain Mannering. And by a margin of two to one, the public agreed with Captain Mannering, and Britain remained in what became the European Union. The funny thing, though, is that people weren't motivated by any great pro-European enthusiasm. Polls consistently showed that actually public opinion was fairly anti-European. I think what motivated most voters was old-fashioned self-interest. In the summer of 1975, when the referendum took place, prices were rising at an annual rate of 26%. Most people, I think, voted out of fear that left on our own, Britain would sink completely. Our productivity growth rate was lower than West Germany's, it was lower than France's, even lower than Italy's. Our inflation rate was five times higher than Germany's. Our GDP growth rate was just half the average in the five biggest EEC economies. So at the time, many people felt that we simply had no choice. Britain's first European commissioner, Sir Christopher Soames, put it rather well. It's damn cold outside the European economic community, he said, and in our present position, this is no time for Britain to be considering leaving a Christmas club, let alone the common market. So this was the decade that, for good or ill, marked the definitive end of Little England, the island nation sealed off from its continental neighbours. 
You can see it in everything from our decimal currency and our package holidays to the inexorable rise of the continental duvet. But of course there were costs as well as benefits, costs that we're still grappling with today. In 1979, Tony Benn, who for all his left-wing internationalism was a little Englander to his fingertips, told the Cabinet that it was a disgrace that British firms were allowed to buy Australian coal and Japanese ships if they were cheaper than their British equivalents. We mustn't be insular, Callaghan replied. This is a world problem. The state can't do anything to stop it. Nobody knows the answer. Now, Ben was horrified. This, he wrote in his diary, is Jim abandoning his role as a British Prime Minister. As it happens, I think Callaghan was probably right. There was really nothing we could do to stop it. We could hardly tell the rest of the world, stop the train, we want to get off. As Callaghan himself put it in his last press conference before polling day in 1979, Change is coming to this country. It's coming all the time, and I think it will accelerate in the 1980s. Change must come to this country. But by this point, Callaghan already knew deep down that he had lost the chance of leading Britain into the 80s. Instead, this is the person who became the champion of change. This is Margaret Thatcher outside number 10 the morning after she'd won the election. And in the picture... She's delivering her famous first words as Prime Minister. Where there is discord, may we bring harmony. More than a little ironic. A promise to banish forever the unrest of the winter of discontent. We may think of Mrs Thatcher as the personification of 1980s values, but really it was the 70s that had made her. All the great historical forces that she came to represent, individualism, consumerism, credit, debt, unemployment, resentment of the trade unions, even for a time, enthusiasm for Europe. All of those things had been gathering strength in the decade before 1979. She's often described as the architect of the new Britain, but I think she didn't so much create this new world as she reflected it. Now, people I know have intensely strong feelings about Mrs. Thatcher's legacy, but I sometimes wonder if we exaggerate her importance. I think many of the things that we associate with her would probably have happened anyway. But there is one thing that nobody can deny her. Because the one thing I haven't really mentioned today is the social trend that mattered, I think, more than any other. The one thing for which the 70s will be remembered. The most remarkable thing about the Prime Minister that Britain elected in 1979 was that she was a woman. It's astonishing to think that when Margaret Thatcher first joined Ted Heath's cabinet in 1970, the wimpy hamburger chain still banned women from coming in on their own after dark. On the bizarre grounds that at that time of night, the only women who would be out must be prostitutes. <laughs> Indeed, there's a supreme irony in the fact that Mrs. Thatcher, who loathed feminism, came to embody the extraordinary expansion of the expectations and horizons of Britain's women. Now, she probably wouldn't have agreed, but in the end, the really interesting thing about the Iron Lady was not that she was made of iron. It was the fact that she was a lady. Thank you. That was Dominic Sandbrook speaking at last year's History Weekend Festival. And I'm pleased to say that we will be returning to Malmesbury this October with another great lineup of historians. Tickets will be on sale on the 29th of April 
and we'll provide more details on this podcast nearer the time. Now, if you can't wait for October, don't forget that BBC History magazine is available each month. On sale now is our April edition, in which Professor Ian Kershaw questions why Adolf Hitler fascinates us more than other historical monsters. Also in the issue, we're exploring the mysteries of Shakespeare's life, challenging myths about Pocahontas, and discovering how beans were once thought to be a powerful aphrodisiac. Look out for our April issue in all good news agents and in our many digital formats. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Well, that's about it for this week. Do get in touch with your views on podcast at historyextra.com and we might well read out some of your messages in the future. And you can keep in touch with us on social media. We're on Twitter, at History Extra, or become a Facebook fan, facebook.com forward slash History Extra. Plus, do make sure to visit our website, historyextra.com, for features, news, blogs, image galleries, and more. Next week, we'll be talking about the Romanovs with Helen Rappaport, while Scott Anderson will be exploring the life of Lawrence of Arabia. Please do join us for that. This History Extra podcast was recorded on location in Malmesbury and produced by Jack Fletcher. 